0: I was just reading a study about the register that men speak in compared to previous generations and how men speak. Yeah. That, oh, that no. the average register of a man's voice has gone up, not because of a physical change, but because of the a societal change and the response that people have. Isn't that, isn't that strange? Just like, Literally, men's voices have become more effeminate on average. It's made me become very aware of what register I speak in and try to like speak in my natural register rather than because it it just the society pulls the register of a man's voice up when it's gay. <sighs> Isn't that, isn't that just the weirdest thing? <laughs>
1: I'm processing that. I'm processing that. Part of me don't want to believe
0: that. Part of
1: me, I mean, that's probably I'll see, I'll see
0: if I I'll see if I can find it and send it your way. I was I want
1: to read that. No, please send yeah. that Because here's what I, actually the first thing that pops into my head is if fatherhood is important to every aspect of a child's life, and I think it is, then hearing his father talk to him in his low baritone voices as a baby he doesn't hear
0: right yeah I, so... I think that's that's exactly it is there's not it's a fatherhood crisis and so you just don't have that example or that the yeah so because we learn who we are when our mom and dad look at us and call us son yeah daughter or that's that's how we learn who we are and um, so, if you don't have that. I forgot to turn my light on.
1: Oh, look at you. You just, now you
0: got a shade above you, your face.
1: Yep. Is that what are, better? What, are, what is that?
0: Oh. I got my light, but I can put it behind the shade.
1: I don't Pull know. The shade I, over. Let me put the shade back down. That's my, yeah. Eh. Would, I like the pop, but, yeah. And the pop right. is more. Nice. Kind of clean, it's clear, I should probably <laughs> yeah, look a at one of my other monitor. Be sure, <laughs>
0: but I, I think that's good. I yeah. think you just have a, you, you just don't have, um. A, and then, you know, I think you head off into society, and masculinity is punished. Yep. In schools, yeah. Yep. Um, and. Unfortunately, I think what you have right now is people are saying that the problem is is schools as an institution and that if we pull our kids from schools, that then we automatically start to get um, some of the things, you know, that because uh, you, you start to see arguments that like, well, going and sitting all day is the problem that, you know, but um, it we're not. I don't think we're actually thinking deeply about. The issue, and I and I also think that we believe that we can be unaffected by people we're covenantally bound to, in our city, in our you know, in our nation, that we're we're actually covenantally bound, and so we there's no way to be unaffected, but that's good news because that means our faithfulness flows out just like there because we're connected, and so mm. as we we flee. And we try to hide, like materialists, who think that somehow, if we just don't if we don't rub shoulders with people, that we're not going to be affected by them. But the covenantal realities in the world mean that we are going to be affected by them, even if we don't rub shoulders or touch them or talk to them ever. You know, um, and so we, I think, we need to think deeper about some of these relationships. I know you
1: weren't planning on talking about.
0: No, not at all. I was planning on talking about this. This is what I've been reading the last few days. Today, but now, <laughs> now I'm really, really fucking all registered. So
1: okay. <laughs> it just happened. Um, so I was watching some of the trailers. And uh, actually, it was J- Jason Whitlock interviewed Dr. John MacArthur. Uh, oh, just, I didn't even see that. Really, I would love to see that interview. Yeah, it was actually really good. I don't think it was, I mean, to be respectful, I disagree with you. Let's just say that. Basically said, America wasn't a Christian nation because a nation can't be Christian. Um,
0: okay, McCarthy was, said that, or
1: yeah, he said that. Yeah. Um, so I disagree with that. I mean, yeah, what was it real? Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, but the, but that's a normal disagreement between Baptists and Baptists, right? Baptist, right? I, yeah. So.
1: No, I, I think it's broadening now even within Baptists. I think Baptists are even saying
0: what? Um, really? Oh yeah. I mean, this, is, this is where you interact with a lot more people, broadly than I do. Oh, you have a so, lot more
1: Baptists who are rising to, totally in opposition against that. I don't think that they know that that's maybe more traditional. Yeah. Side of, because most Baptists now... Internet problems. Is that me? Read a lot more Presbyterians than they ever have before. Um, so there's a different influence from the Presbyterian culture on Baptists that they probably don't even recognize. I think I think the good Baptists recognize the influence of post postmillennial Presbyterian culture on Baptists. What I mean by this, guys like Josh Bice, you know, um, and uh, uh, Scott Annual, they recognize the influence of Presbyterian yeah. culture on Baptists um, more than I think some of the other newer uh, 1689 guys really. do. Uh, so, but no, nonetheless, I was watching and I was listening to John MacArthur and I was really, you know, I I don't, I used to listen to a lot of John MacArthur, a lot of John MacArthur. I've edited so many of his sermons. You know, I, I'm up there in the top tier of people who've listened to, you know, his sermons more than private than most. Right. Because that's what I was doing at Retro was editing for years. Okay to his stuff. And so it would be in the morning, listen to a John MacArthur sermon, listen to another one on the way home from work, listen to it on the way to work the next day um, to find content. And he is just 50 years faithful at his church, solid man, great husband, right? Um, great father, has a, a strong historical Christian representative history that every man says, wow, I want to be that kind of faithful. There's just right. okay, no one can argue with that. No one. Like faithfulness through the roof, consistency on his position towards scripture all through the roof. And I was like, so then I it hit me. Like, why is it that our young men find Andrew Tate far more, enjoyable or attractive than John MacArthur, someone who has all the facets of masculinity, manhood, fatherhood, right there on a large platform. And it doesn't seem that our young man, and I'm not talking about secular, I I get why secular men don't want to pursue John MacArthur, but why is it that our young man see John MacArthur and be like, eh, but Andrew Tate, like that dude, that guy right there, that's, he's got it. And it started really puzzling me. Like, why is it that they are more attracted to Andrew Tate than John MacArthur?
0: Is that my internet causing problems?
1: I don't know. Might be. But we've we've I, had some issues here. But anyway.
0: Yeah. I mean I, I mean, I think it's, well, one, I do think that there's, a lack of real straightforward practical teaching for young men in the church right now. Um, and, and I think MacArthur um, hit, hits that um, it's in some of it's just, you know, age he's, he's not interacting with YouTube YouTubers. Right. And so you've got the world of YouTubers of influencers that MacArthur isn't interacting with direct. And um, so we don't have, uh, so he, they're not getting the straightforward. Um, hey, it, and I think it's throughout the church and I, and here's, and I, I suspect that some of this comes from, uh some of the overall effeminacy I'm not calling MacArthur effeminate, the overall effeminacy of the church though, where, when you, if I were to say, Hey, get married, you should get, you find a girl, to get married. The immediate response that I get every time is, well, Hey, that doesn't work out for everyone. You're going to make somebody feel guilty. Mm, right. right. Well, that's, that's enough. There's an effeminacy in that response. Um, not f- not feminine
1: yeah yeah you know, yeah
0: effeminacy a a where a man where men where where things that should be masculine act feminine um which is what effeminacy is right a feminine is a complement um effeminacy is w- when something that doesn't have a feminine nature is acting according to a, a feminine mm-hmm. nature so um w- and i think i think that that hey you're going to hurt somebody's feelings that really does end up controlling the message in the church mm-hmm. um is the reason that we often miss the young men right because young men um like my my 13 year old the reason he likes to go hang out with his cousins is because they beat him up right like he he, he doesn't have he a, a, it's this pile of pile of older teenage boys at um that when they you know they they'll they'll actually tackle him in a game of tackle football and treat because and so for him that's what respect looks like it's like my cousins respect me enough to tackle me at full strength um even though I'm smaller than them you know the, um so he's looking for uh older older men in his life that will treat him with the respect enough to smack him um like that's what and, and that's a normal that that's normal right that's that's why uh when you get a guy without brothers um he goes looking for brothers because sisters won't do that right and then because they're not they're not supposed to that's not what sisters are for sisters and brothers have different roles in your life when you don't have a bunch of brothers or brothers close in age you go looking you know that that's it's a uh, that's awesome to live close enough to have cousins that'll tackle you that will play soccer and like kick the ball full speed and knock you down and all those things that young that boys know this means i'm being treated like a man i don't mm-hmm. think we do that with young men i don't think we speak straight enough um because we don't um we're we let Voices, we let other voices adjust the message. um, you know, just like if I'm teaching, if I'm speaking with a group of ladies, um, I'm not going to speak the same with the same um forcefulness, right? And I, right, I'm I'm, you, right, in or or, even in mixed company, you don't speak with the same sort of forcefulness, and uh, and so guys like Andrew Tate leverage that for evil <clears throat> as far as I can tell I haven't looked into all of it I know there's you know guilty innocent until proven guilty and all that stuff and you know I, I but I honestly have if, so I've only looked at it from a middle distance from this perspective dude looks guilty as sin um. <laughs> well he, he confessed his own guilt in some of that stuff like I saw
1: I've right. watched yeah. the interview so he's not like trying to hide you know, like he—he's there's no question that he's like, yeah, I had the internet business, yeah, I was, you know, you know, selling—not selling girls, but selling the opportunity to talk to girls and right, get, you know, he's, so Kim, he, he's he
0: was come on, he like, he well, but he's a guy that understands how men work and has used it for evil, um, understands the place that men are in and the challenges they face and uses it for evil, right, um. You know, I just, uh, we have, uh, let's put it this way, my, I, I pay close attention to my teenagers and how they all interact and all, how all their friends interact. And, um, and um, when I was taught high school, I, the students were always surprised at how much of I saw that was actually going on right there and they were like how did you know so and so was dating so and so it's like you know there's and i was like it's because y'all are you guys crazy. don't have a hand as much you. yeah yeah but also because, because <laughs> <laughs> also because if you're paying attention um guys that you know guys and girls that are treating one another like paul says um that are treating one another like brothers and sisters. That's a particular way of treating. And then there's a a way of pursuing uh, a a spouse that you know. Sometimes they do it too early, and that's that's not good. But it's worse. It's better for them to do it too early and make errors along the way than what is actually more common, which is to never pursue a spouse.
1: Is that more common?
0: That's becoming way more common. Mm. Uh, in the church outside that. the church and I, I i mean i have tried to put my hand to the plow in order to understand the field um because i think it's a big concern and because i got four kids and you know i'm trying to guide them through it but you know it's and 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 i think there's two as far as i can see i think there's two errors one i think the church um doesn't really believe I I think it's fear-based because it doesn't believe in God's grace when it comes to uh relationships it's you know if you're gonna you're gonna mess up and be broken and done forever if you're first if you know if if you you know make an error as a teenager in your young 20s or so you've got that problem on the one hand um where we teach everybody to that that sex is scary and dangerous and um and it's so powerful that if you you know that you might find yourself you're just hanging out in a room with a friend and then all of a sudden next thing you know you're pregnant because that's how it works it's like so scary <laughs> it's mm-hmm. dirty bad and nasty now save it for the one you love you know um mm-hmm. that we have that we have a that we have a adopted um a bad view of sexuality, uh, a a view of a view in which sexuality is a bad thing, which is an old um, it's, it's an old kind of neoplatonic Christian ideal um, that, that comes and goes. And and I think right now we're at kind of the peak uh, of part of the problems. And I think it's because the world's view of sex is so messed up that rather than, come in and say let's try and actually have a biblical view we just we we live in response and say run away it's all messed up over there right um so i think that's one thing on the one hand and then on the other hand i think so um that masculinity it the 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 fatherlessness in our society broadly um means that young men uh there they would rather or they tend to to either want to be alone or be with other groups of men because that's the that hole is completely empty and so they don't there's not enough of them to go get a woman right there's there's too much um there's it's too broken to go take risks um because trying to like hanging out with the bros is not a risk, and it fulfills something that your dad was supposed to fulfill in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so but it won't actually fulfill it, right? And so it's like pouring water into a sieve. Um because <clears throat> father, a father's of uh affection, a father's love, uh, love, a father's um, you know, being proud of you, it fills a certain thing within a man that gives him the ability to go take risks. A woman is a risk always. um, even you know when you've been married twenty five years, approaching your wife is always a risk. um the and I think that's something that um that you that a a, a dad teaches his son how to take risks um and so i think that there's a fatherlessness issue and the um the church's view of sex is all warped um and and messed up and i mean my my most popular my most popular class that i used to teach was called introduction to wisdom and it was uh job ecclesiastes and song of solomon and The fact that we were going to sit down and talk about Song of Solomon, you, you, it's just line, people will line up. They, they're, they know that they need help. People know that we need help understanding sex. That it's, that we've, it's some, it's something's broken. It's obviously not working what it is that we're doing. But then it's a scary thing to try and approach.
1: We we need help understanding. Not the not the ability to, to, how to do it, but what it is, the metaphysics what of it. What it is,
0: what it's, yeah, the metaphysics of it, what it's for, how it works, what, what, what's the, the how it fits into a, 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 into your life and a well-balanced life. And, you know, um, the, cause I, th- I think people have been, been told now for a generation that it's the thing that defines you and it's the thing that fulfills you and now they're looking around and they're like well that didn't work. <laughs> now it's just now there's just sexual brokenness everywhere. Right um so it apparently using it for um self definition and using it for self fulfillment was um an error but there's yeah, I, nobody right. coming in and saying I mean there there is a few people coming in and you know my, um my kids they you know, they're joking right now. You know, I was just talking with them yesterday and they were joking about the trad wife trend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like, it's so funny because it's like cosplay, mm. to, um, uh, you know, LARPing. They're like LARPing traditional right. roles. Um, and we, because, and, it, but I think it's because my kids were raised with very, you know, with very traditional roles And so they've seen it in real life, and so for them, they're like, "What? That's like a Halloween costume that they're seeing people put on." But other, but people want there's there's a desire for stability and identity, and they're saying, "What if traditional roles would give us that?" Um, And that's actually not a bad impulse, um, but it it's in some ways it's the kind of. there's problems with this but Nietzsche talks about you can um that that the psyche the collective psyche of a culture swings back and forth between the Dionysian and the Adonisian, uh, um which means the 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 chaotic passionate and the rational organizing principles right so that that the psyche when it, when things get too rational and organized, then you get a breakout of the chaotic passionate. And when Mm. things get too chaotic and passionate, then good, then the, the logical uh, organized looks like good news. And when the logical organized gets overdone, then the chaotic passionate looks like good news or freedom. Right. And so it's this, what, how do you and this is one of those things where you're like oh this is why nietzsche why people listen to nietzsche because they read something like that and they're like oh that actually makes some sort of sense right um i think it's actually a trinitarian error um that he's making that uh fundamentally but he but in our experience of that is true you know when things get too buttoned up um you know, we feel like oh my gosh i got to escape when things get too crazy we think i just need a little bit of a schedule <laughs> right like there's something he, he's on to something that's real um but there's a uh, you know i, th- I think there's a, a trinitarian answer to that that comes from community that he's not uh taking into account but the uh but in experience i think we are we are seeing a response to the Dionysian chaotic passion that says, give me something organized. Give me something logical. Yeah. There's,
1: Um, there's, there's part of the the book we were talking about last time with the fourth turning. that talks about that as well, where you have a generation, you know, so you look at the groomer situation happening now and everybody's like, I don't care who you are, what denomination or Christian or no, like everybody's opposed to the groomer situation, right? All everybody's like, no, no, not right. our kids. They ain't got no kids. They're like, they're like 20 right. or 30, and they're like, I haven't kids, but you, this is wrong to do to kids. And one of the things that the book, written back, I think, in 93 or 97, talked about that the generation, our generation, would be so protective of kids because the generation previous wasn't at all. So yeah. you know, you have so many safeties put around children and, and kids. And our generation, like just all the training wheels stayed on. Um, for us and our kids, we protected protecting them like bubble wrap everywhere, you know, yeah. where the generation before
0: was like, well, just come in before the lights go off. <laughs> like even, even if that, right? Like it right. was even if that you know, yeah. <laughs> where it was like, hey, when the rest of the kids come home. Come you home. better be
1: home. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you can walk, you know, and my parents were still of that kind of generation. So we were walking, you know, 15 miles in a day to go hang out somewhere, you know, yep. and then back and then we would just be gone all day, you know, or on a, I mean, we were rollerblading everywhere in the city, yeah. on the back of vehicles and buses and, and then came back home, you know, out in the morning, back in the evening, that was it. Um, we, but my parents yep. were of a different generation. So yeah
0: yeah me too we would we would rollerblade down the hill to the park and then like get a ride back up in a stranger's truck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a stranger mm-hmm. would just let us jump in the back of his truck and he'd ride us back and I was like I... <laughs> that's that's nuts. That is yeah. like then, I look back and I'm like I don't I wouldn't want to put my kids in that situation
1: and I think that's what happened just like you were saying like that swing right where yeah uh, we had all this freedom and we knew there were a lot of things that happened in between there that our parents know nothing about you know yeah and we like, didn't
0: want to know they didn't... <laughs> right I, know. I don't know what your parents my parents wouldn't they wouldn't ask and I and I don't think I don't think they were I don't think it was an error that they were making I think it was just the times, like yeah. what what could go wrong? Like, you know, we drop you off at the mall and we pick you back up at the end when the mall closed. Yeah. And um, now the mall doesn't even stay open.
1: <laughs> well, now the mall has an age limit to even get in. Right. It was like, yeah, you right. can't come here without an adult. That's how I started doing it at the Mall of America because we were all over that joker. But yeah, I think my mom, she didn't ask unless we brought up something. Right. Yeah. Hey, mom, we had this problem today. Or Miss Johnson called and said, I'm going to tell your mom on you. you know? <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Yeah. The only time we had problems was with somebody had to say something. But, and so the, our generation is way more buttoned down. Can I go over right. to the corner to go grab something from the store? No.
0: No. Yeah. <laughs> no. But, You'll go yeah. If it. you stay on FaceTime with me the entire yeah, way.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Make sure what? you take the phone with your three of your brothers and sisters, you know, is it?
0: And, and, what I wonder, and and some of that I think is because like our whole generation was traumatized, <laughs> sure. by, you know, um, sure. although, you know, not, not every one of us, but generationally speaking, like we did, we made some big mistakes and we're, and we want to protect our kids from those mistakes. Um, but protecting them from mistakes is not the same thing as keep teaching them wisdom. Right. And I think that's where the um, the view of sexuality, like most of the most of our protecting our kids when sexually comes from the fact that we haven't really worked through our own sexual guilt as a Mm -hmm. generation. Right. Mm -hmm. Like um, and and a big part of that is because you can't do it without Jesus and you and right now you can't bring sexual guilt to Jesus at the church in the church because i we are afraid of uh um, we it is it is a weird taboo maybe not a weird taboo maybe it's an appropriate taboo um but it is um it's there isn't a like i think this is some of the attraction of things like roman catholicism where you just go and confess yeah you were talking about there there's a confessional booth where he's like okay i what do i do with sexual sin well i take it right there right they say this is and they and you know the um we need to i think the protestants we need to get better at at explaining confession um and how it and what it is and how it works and um and you know it's a uh because yeah. we have times of confession and we I think we just assume people are using it right <laughs> i mean although not all churches even have times of confession because of the lack of liturgical um awareness uh you know lit, uh, liturgical theology um like they i think they believe in confession and they teach it and but but it's not a part of their service. It's not a part of their service. And which,
1: um, I think, man, you how you the liturgy that you have in your church defines for you how you see the world, right? Yeah. And it's the same way the liturgy that you have in your home. When it comes to, I realize that when I spank my kids, um, we're not done until they repent to the Lord and then to the person who which they have offended. Restoration has to be made, and repentance and forgiveness needs to have an interaction, a transaction. And so when we're spanking and we're dealing with something, I'm teaching them to pray at the same time. And like you said, um, with the the Catholic Church, it's like, well, I know I go right there. Well, I want want to teach my kids in the same way. All right, we need to go to Jesus. We need to go to Jesus. We need to take our sins to Jesus, ask Jesus to forgive us. And then when when we finish, we know he has because he says, so we trust him. And then now we walk in that, right? And so— And so that's part of our discipline in the home so that they're remembering sin causes division. Christ puts it back. Right. And and I don't think that that liturgy is in our discipline in our family so that the kids are dealing with sin from a very young age. You know?
0: Yeah. Did you did you have a spanking liturgy?
1: Yeah, do you? Do you? you
0: guys, you guys are still spanking. All my kids have grown out of spankings now. Yeah, you don't
1: do that no more. I have no. my youngest is three, so you know we yeah. still. Yeah, <laughs> well,
0: Yeah, I because yeah, we had a spanking liturgy that we just put together when, my our oldest when we first were like, okay, we're gonna have to start spanking this one, um, and uh so we put together a little, like spanking liturgy, um, I mean, we we had like we had like a a hand movement catechism before they were before you know when they it for dinner time we had all these all these little things that um that i was thinking like man i i still remember it but i don't think it's written down anywhere we just just like it's it's like living memory um you know that like when so we take our kids we we called it babylon all right kids let's go to babylon um and it was you know the bathroom when it was time for spanking we'll go in and they would get uh their their spanks and then um we would pray together and father in heaven they would repeat after us so we were teaching them to pray yeah how to confess uh father in heaven please forgive me for any um teaching them how to identify their sin and yes. then we would say and jesus makes us and they would say all clean and we would hug mm. and um so from the beginning we were putting into their mouth the prayers that god wanted them to pray yeah. and it, that was because i of our study you know my wife and i um just reading about liturgical theology and realizing, oh, this is what learning looks like and reading about learning. And so just using all of that to develop a way. Like I, I, my son last night at Sabbath dinner was said, uh, he was like, man, that sermon made me feel terrible about myself. It was so good. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we laughed and he's like, you know what I mean? I was like, well, yeah, because you know how to confess your sin and be free right. from it. And so conviction is a blessing, like is a, is welcome. Right. Yeah. When you know um conviction of sin is welcome when you know how to get rid of it. That's how right. to get rid of the sin, right? How to be cleansed. Um of you, they, when somebody points out you got dirt on your face, that's a blessing. If there's a washcloth to take it off. Right. Yeah. If there's no washcloth to take it off, then you gotta you you start covering it, right? You um you that's, so and funny. that's what
1: yeah, go ahead. I tell people I, tell people, I was like You're not my friend if I have something in my beard and you didn't tell me. (laughs) Like if you let me eat dinner and you didn't tell me, but that goes along with everything else. It's like, wait a second, you know, if there's sin and I I don't always see it. I can't see myself unless I'm in a mirror. And so you are my mirror, my brother, my my friend. Like you're supposed to tell me, Hey man, you got some taco meat in your beard right there. You know? (laughs) Like, oh, thank you, brother. Oh, you still ain't get it. Like, let's get let's get this thing out because as a Christian, I don't want sin being pervasive in my life, and so right. you know
0: well, that. But but this is where like we really like our theology. Our we have in theory, I think we have our a theology of forgiveness and of atonement, and that. But it it is not an existential reality for a lot of Christians mm. because. uh some of it's because we, I think, we mix up guilt and shame, and so we we're trying to confess guilt when we're experiencing shame. Mm. Um, you so
1: separate those and, two, out so people can understand that because that's really interesting. So guilt and shame not different. We're trying to repent for guilt when we actually have shame. Are you thinking yeah. Roman here?
0: Yeah. So so um, guilt is guilt is an objective thing Um, before a judge a judge right so yeah it's a legal issue um you're you're in court and you have are standing in front of a judge or a jury you know a jury is just the city is just the city making a judgment on for you um is what a jury's supposed to be where the 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 community or the it's a um a communal judgment um it's our elders in the gate, you know? So you're sitting there and you're saying, I am guilty of this. Mm-hmm. I deserve stripes on the back. I deserve to be stoned. I deserve to be put in prison or, you know, whatever, whatever, um, metaphor system you're functioning under. Right. Uh, and you, uh, and you say, and you confess the, the, you're confessing your legal guilt. Right. Um, and we actually even have, I mean, that's legal, confession is even legal, legal language. It just means agreeing together with somebody, right? So uh, agreeing together with the authority. So you're confessing, uh, you're agreeing together with God that it is guilt because the punishment of your guilt has happened in advance. You're, you go free. You weren't let off. But Jesus was just punished on your behalf, right? So you go free because uh, from the guilt because Jesus was already punished for the guilt. Uh, <clears throat> that's a legal. You're dealing legally before God. Um, shame is the feeling that of not wanting of of not wanting it exposed, or of you know that that feeling that you're you know of. It's similar to embarrassment, but it's like, you know, I'm a sh- that that you're that you don't want your sin to be exposed, um, because of the effect that that sin has on relationships, the effect you know, uh, the effect that the sin has, uh, in terms of your standing in the community, you know, all of those things. Those are shame, um, and but Jesus took our shame too because he was crucified naked on the cross. We, we know that he was taking our shame. He he was objectively taking our shame upon himself when they stripped him naked. He, he, it was our shame being put on him. And so he never did anything shameful, but we have done shameful things. Um, and you're, I'm seeing a trend of people starting to say shame is a good thing. Um, and that we need to do better at shaming people that are doing something shameful. And, um, and I, I, I get what they're saying, but I think it's backwards. You don't, the, you, uh, forgiving people of their shame is what actually makes people tender to shame. Piling shame onto someone doesn't make them more and more tender to shame. Um, more and more quick quicker and quicker to confess when someone's shame is taken away, when someone is covered, it, it talks about in Corinthians that one of the, one of the things the church does is it covers our, our shameful members, right? That the church surrounds people that have done something shameful um, and covers them and protects them and forgives them. And um, when, when they confess that that they did something shameful we no longer treat them according to it that's what makes somebody sensitive to shame not piling the shame on and in fact i think that's why um i think we're in the situation we're in in terms of the uh we we live in a culture that has no sensitivity to shame because the shame has been piled on and piled on and piled on and we've lost all sensitivity Sh- we don't have any shame nerves communally speaking anymore mm. that doesn't mean that the existential experience of shame goes away it just means we don't know what to do with it and so we end up with more uncovering, with more shame right we end mm. up uncovering thinking that that's the problem right um you know the and uh it's it's a um you know maybe it feels backwards or inside out or something. But um, when somebody learns to take their shame to Jesus, leave it at the cross, uh, walk away from it unashamed, knowing that Jesus isn't ashamed. I mean, specifically in Hebrews, Paul goes out of his way to say, uh, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you brethren. He's not ashamed. He He's not up there embarrassed of the, the, his people. And he's not ashamed. That's why he died for us. Um, that, uh, and we – so when we come to existentially experience that, right, that that God smiles at us and he sings over us and he loves us and he's happy to have us as his child, uh, he's not ashamed of us, not embarrassed of us, um, then that's when we start to get real sensitive to shame. We start to say, well, I'm not going to do that because that would be shameful, Right, that that shame starts to mean something when we've experienced living without it, um, or experience relationships without it, and it's so hard as a parent. One of our jobs is to just continually not to be embarrassed of our kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but they're embarrassing, <laughs> and we just have to over and over say, "Man, I love that kid." That rascal of a kid who's so embarrassing boy do i love him right we we want to back away and say whose kid is that i mean sometimes as a joke we you know we can but it's we we can joke that way as a way of moving towards them but there are you know we are tempted to back away from our kids when they're embarrassing when um especially when they're teenagers or young tweens um, because they look like adults but they act like children and they need the grace of a child and the respect of an adult and yeah you know, at the same time and we're when we're embarrassed of them and we back away um it they they learn to to get numb to that shame well um,
1: yeah actually it's funny you know i've thought about that a lot and one of the things that because i think that was my knee-jerk reaction when we had younger kids was to be like notice that it there is a the shaming aspect to that to your kid because they've shamed you instead of actually taking all the shame as your own responsibility right. as a father. Exactly. No, that's me. I taught yeah. them that. <laughs> yeah. That's on me. I got that one. Blame me. Yeah. You take it all. Um, and then your kids see that and there's a responsibility. And so you take it, you take the shame, you deal with it, you manage it, you, you, you take it all on yourself. And I think that's kind of helped. Um, me think about like, that's what God has done for me, right? Like he's, mm-hmm. he's taken my shame right, upon himself and he spared me of that shame, right? Um, but there is, a, and so then there's a reciprocal attitude towards seeing God take your shame that makes you not want to bear any for yeah. him. are like not, not bear any, but not bring, not,
0: bring, in, yeah, yeah, bring any upon him.
1: Yeah. On him, right? Because of, he, he doesn't have to do that. He shouldn't have had to do that. And yet he did. What a kind God, right? Um, right. And so as a father, I'm always thinking, how do I then operate like the father <laughs> right. right? so that I'm covering my kids all the time and they don't have to worry about how to deal with it? I will say, though, there is a our current culture has such a numbness to shame. I don't know exactly how they got it, but the gift of shame isn't there anymore. Right. There is no.
0: Right. There is well, I no, think that anything. The gift, yeah. The 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 conviction of sin that shame can bring it's just it's is gone and it's but now it's like all right but i think that because it's gone we i think we need to stop acting like it's still there like what you know and <laughs> it's gone be like yeah. okay it's gone and but know that um it's the it's not objectively gone. It's just been internalized and accepted as part of your, of the identity, the identity of people, yeah. people. Right. So, um, and that's because, so this, and this is one of the things that the cross does when we're a new creation in Christ, our shame, our guilt, you know, it's separated from us I mean, that's the, the language it's used. So we can actually look at it and see it because it's no, we're not look, looking at ourselves anymore. Right. So, there's an an i mean a real existential experience of me being separated from my shame looking at my shame as if it's something that's not me it's not my identity anymore and being able to take it to the cross and so then when it shows up again i can recognize it and it's not um i don't have to internalize it as part of my identity um because it's not me right the shame is not me um even if it's mine it's not it doesn't touch my identity. My identity in Christ is, is safe, seated at the right hand of God where no one can get to it, including me with my guilt and my shame. I can't, Mm -hmm. I, I can't achieve the identification of my, of me and my shame anymore because my identity is way up there on the other side of the, Wandering planets, right of the wandering stars, at the right hand of God, where there are pleasures forevermore. My identity's safe up there. All of the shame and the guilt is down here. And there's this space. Um, there's a there's an up down space that Paul talks about. Um, he, that we're you know we are like the stars in the heaven. We are seated at the right hand of God. That our down. right. And then there's an east west um, mm. distance as, as well, right? So both metaphors are used. And um <laughs> and of the separation between us and our guilt and our shame, so that our we don't it doesn't become our identity and we can look at it objectively and deal with it. Right. Um you, you like when, when something is in is like inside your throat, you can't see it. Right. When something's inside you, you can't see it. But when something's separate from you, you can see it, you can deal with mm-hmm. it. And w- every time we move towards our kids and take their embarrassment onto ourselves. You learn that from me, you know, uh, this is, uh, man, I love, you know, man, I love that kid. Look at him being obnoxious. Come over here. Let me show you how to not be quite so obnoxious. Um, you know, this, I, this is this, you, you are my kid. I love that. You're my kid. And I'm proud to have you for my kid and you're acting this way as because of you're being raised by us, right you take you're taking their shame upon them. It's not their identity. they can see it, and then that shame when it shows up is recognizable' I don't it's not know swallowed into the identity so quickly.
1: you have to assume the covenant reality of your children mm-hmm. in order to be able to do that. You cannot yeah, do absolutely. that in that covenant reality, so while you might not believe in infant baptism and all this other stuff, you still have right like there is just to be able to apply a disciplinary act to them. If you're spanking your kids and not teaching them to repent of their sin to Jesus, you're, you're legalistically operating with your child, right? Like they, right. They, they have a place to actually take their sin. So then when you spank them, on, on what standard are you spanking them on to say, yes, you have sin, but you can't take it anywhere? Like <laughs> right. right, you have sinned, but you can't take it. no, no, no. If you're getting thanked, it's because you sinned against your Lord, and you sinned against your Lord. You need to go repent to your Lord, and if He's not your Lord, then neither the offense nor the repentance is necessary.
0: Right, and but there are Baptists that think that, are? <laughs> I, I think
1: I think a lot of people spank their kids and do these things because they're like, "We're supposed to raise their children up um, to fear the Lord and all that." But then, yeah. I you know if they think through what does it mean to fear the Lord. Right? There is right. a
0: responsibility. Yeah.
1: No, that really messed me again. up. When I uh, am I here?
0: Yeah, you're back. I lost okay. you for a second.
1: It messed me up when I was teaching my children to repent after spankings. You know, I was, okay. I didn't, yeah. I didn't baptize my kids until my fourth child. And so they're, oh, okay. so I'm raising my, um, so Alex, she was two, four. uh, So yeah, yeah. So Alex was about six years old, I think, when she got baptized. And so Andrew was fourth child. So yeah, so I didn't baptize my kids to my fourth child. It convicted me that I was spanking her and the others um, and having them go through this process of repentance. And yet they weren't, I was assuming so much of the covenant realities without the covenant sign. And I'm like, how do you, how do you do that? (laughs) Like it was, so yeah, I think I wanted to be a good parent. I wanted my kids to love the Lord. And I, but yet at the same time, I didn't understand all the implications of what I was doing in my discipline. Right. Like I'm saying, you didn't honor Jesus. Well, I was making, well, as long as you live in this house as if they weren't, that wasn't a covenant reality, that living in this house was a covenantal, (laughs) you know?
0: Right. Right. So, Um, but this, so is this where, um, is this like Christian nationalism is in in a lot of ways it's like a, a baptist view of the nation in that it, you can have a a nation you where you've, the laws are set in order and by force things are kept in place um it, it, we're we are a christian nation by by authority by authority um uh, without it being a covenantal reality that is oh that the that the citizenry has um the root of
1: some of them not not it's not it's a, you know the problem with christian nationalism is that it's all over the place
0: it's all over the map yeah but I
1: think because, that ones that are cut co- that are I think you got guys who are covenantally thinking about this who would say no because the only reason you get a Christian nation is because the people themselves Right. Um, but then you have another group which is like, yes, I think there is a very strong Baptistic group. And I say this, I want to make sure that some of the guys who flip out over hearing this, you reform 1689 guys are not the majority. So just sit back <laughs> and, you know, like, because yeah, nobody talking about y'all because y'all hardly exist in a blip of evangelicalism, just like yeah. CRP. Like, we're behind y'all on that one. So everybody, yeah, we're, like, even smaller. Yeah, we're, we're even but smaller. I, but so I think just, I had a
0: a really eye opening conversation with a guy, um, who was explain he was explaining, um, he was like, well, "Look, people, Christian Christian nationalism. Most people don't know dictionary definitions. They don't know anything. Right?" And he he was saying, "Let me explain to you what people hear when they when you say Christian nationalism should." The nation honor Jesus. Yes. Okay. Well you're a Christian nationalist because that's because you want a Christian nation. Right. Uh, and and I, I was saying, oh, okay. Right. That's really helpful because all I hear when I hear nationalism, I I hear historical Jean, f- Jean f- Jean-Jacques <laughs> Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, Saying perhaps we should build a guillotine and start chopping the heads off of the 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 wealthy <laughs> like oh, that's, that's, na- that's like that's nationalism come. yeah that's I, you know, I do I do think that is, but what um but I'm so a- then i when i but but within but then so yeah. then talking with people realizing okay so then well these the particular nationalists that I was talking to, they were saying, look. You can reform a you you can actually it, it if you want the blessing of God you've got to get the laws in order right and you you do that by what, by whatever means God has appointed right so we should be out trying to get Christians elected to make Christian laws to do you know um th- because then God will bless us and I was thinking oh this is backwards. In my mind, the Christian laws are the blessing.
1: Right.
0: Right. They flow from the covenant faithfulness. They don't, the covenant faithfulness, the blessing doesn't flow from. Yeah, there's the a laws.
1: lot of aspect to some of the p- positions on it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But,
0: but what you were just describing about a Baptist home, it sounds very similar to what a lo- those folks mean by Christian nation.
1: You froze up. Uh,
0: okay, what you were describing about a be a, being a a Baptist home, it sounds it sounds like what those folks were describing as a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That the Christian that the citizenry is expected to fall in line without a conversion, but you're in our home, right? So that that there's a you're 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 on our you're on our property you're under our roof you're gonna fall in line um or or else the 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 um the force of the law will will put you back into line right um yeah. so yeah yeah so um and I realize not all Christian nationalists are in that camp and with that broad definition of christian nationalism that this particular guy was saying well this is what actually most people hear say well okay now i think that it actually helped me understand the attraction of it um even though i i think that the it's still a road that has a uh, direction (laughs)
1: well nationalism has been nationalism has been redefined right so yeah um it doesn't mean what it used to mean it just means I, a nation
0: yeah right. it does but i think christian is being redefined by the in secretly in the redefinition of nationalism
1: christians do what
0: i think christian is being redefined
1: it's it's dealing with the civic part of the the people so um, I have to think about that. My, my my thing is the same way that I think we would have to look at Christian critical theory. Could Christianity survive the critical theory aspect? Or is Christian be defined in front of critical theory? Something's When you have to do that, I don't think any Christian would be comfortable. Well, hold on. They just came out with a book. That yeah, Tim Keller even signed off on talking about Christian critical theory, biblical critical theory, or something like that. Okay. And, and, um, or woke Christianity or something like that. I think another one that came out years ago. And Doug, I, I remember him criticizing that book, saying, Okay, if you're going to use the term, you got to tell me what you gutted from it. Right. Yeah. You got to tell me how this thing has functioned because that has a whole level of its own. Connotations attached to that word and definition. You're gonna have to tell me how you gutted this Joker to redefine it, and it doesn't seem like you're doing that. There's a lot It's
0: like that episode of The Simpsons where you've got the fish that has the poisonous gland on the inside, and you have to carefully cut out the poisonous gland. Yeah, and and uh, and Homer's been pretending to be. A sushi chef, and then all of a sudden he has to cut this thing, and everybody's gonna die if he messes up. Yeah, yeah, I know, that's what we've got.
1: <laughs> so, you, so uh, just to wrap on the Tate stuff, so Andrew Tate is the product of what happens when people don't deal with sh- um guilt and shame properly. You get an Andrew Tate that becomes attractive
0: to young men because why? Well, because he's he is. Um telling them they don't have to be ashamed of being young men. Which right.
1: is um, there is a shame, there is a shame that's been put on young men. Yeah. For sure yeah. Men. Right. There's an effeminacy. And, to the culture yeah. is happening. And,
0: and the church is is not res, not responding in the same sort of way, right? The the church um is not saying you don't have to be ashamed of being now there there I think there's a growth there's some growing ministries And um, sure, but- yeah, and but I guess it's still uh shameful just masculinity is still sort of viewed generally as a shameful thing
1: you know it's funny because when I look at John MacArthur I don't see that it's that that's the case we have and he's not the only one we've had a lot of godly men who have been bold um and you know uh out for out front they haven't held back their thoughts they've been masculine In 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 battles that they've had, I mean, maybe I'm just thinking, maybe it's so far removed since RC Sproul's death that I'm thinking like all the controversies that came up. These guys were like out here fighting them.
0: Um, Yeah, but I don't think the next generation is being told those stories.
1: So we don't talk about the stories, the controversies of MacArthur and those guys, and there's those battles that. Yeah, you're. You might be right. You might be right. Twenty some odd years ago, the conservative resurgence, that whole narrative, are close to thirty now. I guess you might be right. You might be right. We're not telling those stories, and so then we don't know that we have those kind of heroes in our narrative.
0: Right, those kind of men. Yeah, we don't realize that we've got we that that we've got the men in our midst. That the giant killers are here. And so there's a new giants and all the young men say, man, the boomers never dealt with a giant. And
1: And there's no respect for, there is no respect for boomers at all anymore. Like there's none. It's so funny. But here's here. Like the boomers, so long as they hit the things that we like them to hit. And as soon as they go off just a little bit, or we or something that we don't even like, they might not be off. We just might not understand them well. I'm watching this with George Gilder happen. Then we are apt. We just like come for their throat. It's like and and then someone will step up and say, like C. R. Wiley, hey, you guys are are completely being disrespectful to someone who's been in the game way longer than you and has a lot more wisdom than you do on this subject. And it's like blood, sweat, and tears. And people are like, oh, you know, here goes Boomerville. You know, I'm like. Like you don't get to tell Cr Wiley he's Boomerville. I'm sorry, you don't get to do that. Like <laughs> you say, maybe I miss some. My bad. You know, like you you respect the OG, right? Like that's. Yeah. There's um, you know, there's guys that I vehemently disagree with, and uh, and yet there's some things that I'm like I'm. I'm not going to challenge them in the same way somebody who is my peer, right? There's just a order of respect there. And I'm going to disagree with them and have my position, but I've just watched some of the, some of the other things come out. I'm like, what is wrong with
0: y'all? But this is where we, we think that we are not being affected by the broader culture because we've retreated from it and we don't realize the covenantal connection. So there, the, we, we live in a, I would say that right now our culture is defined by its defiance of the fifth commandment.
1: Oh, hands right. down, That's a, well, facts. Yeah. You to speak that. Yeah. Cause, uh, go ahead, break that down.
0: So the um that and I and I think the church led the way. So this is I, the 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 culture followed along when we started saying. Hey, it's not your not your grandparents' church. And then the next generation said, not your parents church. And now the next generation is saying, not your parents' church. Right. We each oh. each generation um, oh. has said has said that, right? We've been saying it for a while. Uh it's a it's a church oh. growth strategy. So
1: uh that who is your parents church.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, but we and then now we've got to Generation below us that has said that is saying, um, hey, we're we not going to listen to our parents or our grandparents or whatever. And we say, hey, you should be respectful. And you're like, well, Womerville, we, we, yeah, Boomerville. And you're like, well, we, we weren't. I mean, right. So, um, well, I don't know. Some of us were, <laughs> I got- so, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I mean, I, I have tried to. Uh, I mean, I think I'm now entering that, the older generation and it's, you know, but I've tried to always, um, I'm, I am grateful that I learned early on to take the 10 commandments seriously from the, the guy that was in teach my baptism class, right? <laughs> he, he, um, like, Hey, you, you want to know what a blessed life looks like? Here's 10 commandments, right? Mm. <laughs> Uh trust the Lord, follow these. This is the these are the paths that lead to blessing, right? And so really grateful for that. Um, but it but most folks don't get that teaching. Um and uh and for me, this is one of the reasons I retreated into the library early on was because I looked around and I said I, I got told so I got I got taught Christianity most people haven't what's going on um and to to really dig in at, because um i think there's this massive disrespect for uh in american christianity for anything that's gone before so a um mm. you know if you so if somebody comes along and they say hey this book um is really important and was really good immediately People will find something they disagree with, and then they camp there. Um, the 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 older the older Christian view was that the was that um, first you find what you agree with, right? That's where you start. You start the conversation with what you agree with. Um, that was considered uh, the Christian way of dealing with things for a long, long time. Uh, and now uh you know we we have we have been so influenced by I think liberal secularism um not not liberal in the um not not liberal in like the progressive sense liberal secularism uh in the the, the Gnostic Uh, understanding that my view on the world is what gives me my identity right my ideology gives me my identity right we've been so influenced by that that somebody that disagrees with us about anything it feels like an attack on our identity Mm -hmm. and so you've got an entire generation that does not realize an entire generation of christians that does not realize they're acting like um like gnostic modernists like liberal secularists uh ideologists that's it's not a real word i just made it up but that ideology is the thing that gives us our identity and so when somebody comes and says hey i disagree with you about this or that it's it feels like an attack on our identity because our ideas are us that's a that's not a christian view right our ideas are not are not us are the us comes from covenantal, objective covenantal realities and our response to them? It, um, so you've got this, I think, crazy gr- growing. Um, it's been, I think, it's been really is what. It's there's a resurgence of um, black nationalism, white nationalism, racial, racial identification as my fundamental identity. Right. There's been a huge resurgence of that. Um, But I think it's because people are looking for anything solid to hang their identity on. That's not going to change in six months. Um, That's not going to change in two weeks you know they they tried hanging their identity on America and it fell apart they tried hanging their identity on political parties as falling apart like oh I'm a conservative that's who I am and then the next thing you know the conservative party is trying to build bridges to the lgbtq community you're like what are you doing I just I, this this is a threat to my identity and so they right. say well perhaps biology perhaps my DNA will show up and it will give me a solid identity marker that isn't going to change on me. <coughs> the problem is that's not what we're told by God to put where, where we're told by God to put our identity. It's just simply not, you know, um, we're-
1: why then? Okay. But then Christian nationalism seems to be a great place to put your identity because it's Christ centered on how we understand everything about the nations. Right. Then that right. would be a great place to anchor your identity.
0: Yeah, so you can join the Pharisee party because that's what it is.
1: Hmm. But it's identity anchored in Christ.
0: I it's identity anchored in a in a legalistic version, I think, of Christ.
1: Hmm.
0: I mean it's uh, th- this is where like I have a lot of I I have a lot of uh Um, sympathy for MacArthur who's when he says you can't have a Christian nation well you're you can't in your definition of Christian and you're resisting the redefinition of the word Christian that they're trying to do and I'm with him on that although he and I actually have a different definition of Christian I think he is right that it's a redefinition of the word Christian because it's not the Christian laws that made America a Christian nation. Because we were a Christian nation, we got Christian laws.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a different it, place to flow differently.
0: It flowed differently, right? So um, the, the –
1: No, just to work that the, out real quick. You got to work that out real quick because um, Israel um, got their laws after God had already baptized them. Right, like right. God has baptized them, converts them, moves them into their place, and He says, "And now you will get your like." So they get their laws um, after their transformation of who they are. Right. From this is the prologue. The, the,
0: why the prologue to the Ten Commandments is so important, right? I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now here's the Ten Commandments, right? Right. I am the God that brought you through the Red Sea. Now right. here's your Ten Commandments. So the the covenantal the the laws were a blessing that flowed from the covenantal realities.
1: Yeah. So then if you have a nation that doesn't have those covenant realities, you can't get those laws to actually do, you might get those laws, but you don't get those laws to actually mean it's kind of like Israel going to war after they didn't honor God. Right. Like they didn't believe him; They yeah. were faithless and we're, like, we're going to go fight now. And he's like, don't do that. Don't you do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not with you. Right. Yeah. So then and I, th- I think
0: that, I think that's where we're at right there
1: at that place where we need to go back and repent. And so, but then is that a point where if you're following that kind of narrative, you have a generation that needs to die off before because they weren't faithful to God. Right. So, and then it's trying to, then you're trying to go to war without the blessing of God, or you're trying to take something without the blessing of God um, because you have, you have not been faithful to believe God in the beginning. Right. So that yeah. Well, I think a, you're that dry that's prep this preface to you going to battle.
0: So yeah, yeah. That that first says let's keep the covenant and then says because we know that the that the blessing of the Lord is what we need, right? We need the presence of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord. And the and that really and and, and but this is where you know so this is this is why I have sympathy for MacArthur Um, but we actually you know we have different definitions of Christian because I think that any covenantal reality can be converted right any any so I believe in corporate conversion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he doesn't he doesn't right so we disagree on that he has been faithful throughout his life and so it's this is not a this is you know I look at him and say you know, Lord may I finish strong like you, like Mm -hmm. like he like he has, right? Mm -hmm. um, Um may I finish strong like him. He uh but we have a different definition of Christian, but his resistance to the change of the definition is because he's got his eyes open and says, Nope, I actually I clearly understand what I believe about this, and that's a shift I'm not willing to make. I actually have the same uh the the same thing about christian but because i have a different definition of christian that uh i i believe a nation can be converted a nation can be baptized right that that covenantal reality can come in line by faith with yeah. um god's promises uh that but that um that uh it's not by the law right it's it's not a it, it's not the the um now the law is part of the good news that comes along with the blessing of the lord i think the law is good news um but it's not by the law that a, na- a nation becomes christian it's not by the change of laws that a nation becomes christian it's by faith right um that we serve the lord faith is the mark of of christians and that baptism is the way in is the only way in um so, so it doesn't matter if you change the laws shift the laws all that none of that turns you into a christian nation it's baptism and faith um it's water and the spirit you know those are the things that make christians including i think corporate corporate bodies that get converted right so that's a christian family is marked by baptism and faith by by water and the spirit, right? You know, those those, uh, and we always want to we also want to trim it down to the lowest possible thing. That fundamentalist American fundamentalist mindset that says, "Well, which is it?" You say, "Well, no, it's all these." You know, it's <laughs> we mm-hmm. don't we don't have to divide it out and say, "Is it water? Is it faith? Is it spirit? Is it you know, word?" Or and you say, "Well, no, it's those those are the marks." Yes, those, yeah. Um, and it's corporate, co- corporate salvation is not by works, corporate salvation is by faith because all salvation is by faith and not by works.
1: So, does chapter three, Belfiebe, Amrit, and the Garden of Adonis have anything to do with what we're talking about?
0: <laughs> I, I think, think, well, so I, I, I think it does. Um, I do too, be, just. So he, he's talking about how there are two gardens. Um, so he's basically, this is a chapter about the allegorical view of sexuality that um, the medievals and the reformers the, the that during the ref that didn't go away till, till the enlightenment. Right. So you had this allegorical understanding of human, of all of human life, including human sexuality. Um, That and that all of and that Edmund Spencer uses the images of a return to a garden, or really like a parade, two different parades through two different gardens, to to show um, the four possible, the four quadrant, the four quadrants of sexuality, maybe Uh, something like that. Okay, Uh, and so you've got the 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 divine allegory that Mm. human sexuality is that can be either used in a divine or a diabolical way right so there's that that sexuality points us towards points us beyond ourselves um to something uh to to eternity but hell is eternity just like heaven is eternity right and so it can either point to in a divine heavenly direction it when it's used in a self-giving love way or when it's used in a um a selfish um a, a selfish way of but get that where we try to to go and grab and take a an, an eternal identity from it um we you know, sort of mm. vampire our way through life and use other people in order to get a, an eternal identity he said it's diabolical it's demonic it's a demonic use of of it that is eternal um but e- e- eternal damnation in advance so
1: he's, right. he, he's building off the false cupid with this then
0: He's building off the false Cupid. Exactly, right? So um the false Cupid has to do with the experience of love and falling in love because that's what Cupid does when he strikes you with an arrow. Now, moving from the experience of falling in love to the sexual act, he then says that sex itself is an allegory of div- of divinity. of e- It's an allegory of eternity. Um, it is a... It's a it's a way of taking your place in the eternal cosmos. Cos the cosmos isn't eternal into the past, but it's eternal into the future because of God's work. As far you know, as far as we know, what we've been told. So, um, he said it's what it's a central way that we take our that it's an alleg way that we allegorically take our place in the divine story experience something of divinity uh, you know because of the generative nature right so god is creator he created everything he draws us into the creative act of the next generation through sex right so it's it, so it, yeah now it doesn't make us gods but it right. gives us a similar sort of experience an allegorically related experience to God as creator. And so it's mm. really, really, so he says, it's a really, really powerful thing. Um, but then he says, but there's obviously we, we twist things and the devil twists things and lies twist things. And when we have something that's supposed to be a life giving act becomes a life taking act, mm. um, then that monstrous use of sexuality, it, that diabolical use, demonic use of sexuality, he said, actually doesn't make it not allegorical. It doesn't change the nature of the act itself. It just is now, a, um, changes the direction of the metaphor, the direction mm. of the allegory. So that's the, the first two, categories but then he says but but it's actually a layered thing because there's also the natural use mm. of sexuality which um so that's sort of the divine and eternal use um so the love of god <coughs> is um uh, the, the the overflowing love of god that creates new beings to love is that divine use uh, or that divine reflection within sexuality is points us towards the eternal. But then the natural use of sexuality that is at the same time, it's not like there's you know, two different sexual acts, it's just the the um, that actually embeds us into time and helps us find our place in time. So one helps us find our place in the cosmos, the other helps us find our place in time. I mean, if you remember Gnosticism, um is a separation from matter and a separation from history. This is like the 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 de-gnosticizing effect of sexuality yeah. that the medievals understood and why it is that you protected it so heavily within the covenant
1: so a separation, <clears throat> separation from history Gnosticism
0: Gnosticism. yeah, yeah. so it separates us from matter and from matter. Um, its proper use, which is to reflect the proper use of matter, reflects us toward is an allegorical, um, that the pleasures of matter are all the eternal pleasures sneaking in in advance. The proper use, though, of history is that we become a part of the the chain, so and so instead of a great chain of being you actually have a historical chain of uh, of reality how does he put it in here <laughs> um so he says uh so the in the the first one the eternal one he says in our own erotic experience we participate in the cosmic operation right so okay, that's the that's all the Oh, that's a uh, page 52. So that's on the one hand, like that, that cosmic operation is we, we get to be a part of it. Um, and then uh, on the other hand, so then on page 56, he says, we, we ourselves can do nothing about mortality, but Venus can for her union with matter, the fertility of nature in its continual conquest of death. Um, matter is wedded to the anime anima mundi or the which is the the the, the spirit um the spiritual power of the world um the spirit uh but that's but because we're so far separated right we we talked about this the, su- the supernatural understanding of reality last time this is where Um, you know, in in many ways, the the view of nature in the scriptures is closer to animism.
1: Yeah, we talked about um, that.
0: Yeah, than than materialism. Materialism is so is is as far removed from a scriptural understanding of reality as you can get. So, um, the so
1: Lord have mercy.
0: Yeah, it really is you know a need Um, so there's um that the matter moves through history but death is the death rules over matter (coughs) until christ came and changed the rulership but now the um the so death is no longer the ruler but all of creation is still groaning because it still is going through the process of death even though now resurrection is sneaking in in advance um, so Christ is the first fruits he's the beginning of the um, the reaping or the harvesting of new life um, but the the final harvest hasn't yet come so in the return of Christ you get a final harvest uh, and the 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 resurrection of all things where all things are put right the just and the unjust are all Judged and um, well in the meantime we're going th- the the world is going through the process is is under the power of death and we can't escape that for ourselves but um the processes that god put into the world right the rhythms of 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 Summer leading to fall, leading to winter to leading to spring right. again, leading to summer, leading to fall. So that process, the generational um, the fact that each generation births the next generation. Um, the, there's a, a large scale rhythm that has to do um, with the the motions of the stars right? all of these different things are resurrection themed. There are allegories of resurrection. So the fact that you're going to die, but that before you die, you can bring new children into the world. Right. He says, we ourselves can do nothing about mortality for ourselves, but Venus can. Well, this is the, that love Venus is the one. So he, and here he's talking about how Venus love, the beauty beauty of reality the beauty of nature the beauty of women all all these different things that that inspires the overcoming of death by the birthing of children so we do not think this way at all this is so outside of the way we think that um that by having children we're helping we're historically conquering death with jesus that death doesn't win you know it defeats my body but it doesn't feet defeat the human race mm. because we keep having kids but when we embrace um when when we hate wisdom that embrace of death means that death does start to win in different pockets of the human race at different times right there are generations that that don't replace themselves there are families that go out of existence there are um you there you there are family names that disappear you know because we don't have the children or or because sometimes sin the effects of sin come in and we can't have children right there's things but that the um but in the through the covenantal nature of reality the covenantal the fundamental covenantal nature of mankind um the birthing of children is the overcoming of death in history. That because and because God is present and the spirit of God is present, and the spirit of God is the one that is knitting to, together in the mother's womb, and it's actually God defeating death. And we are the means by which God continually, generation after generation, defeats death one more time. Defeats death one more time. Now, it's not in the same sense. It's a it's a participatory defeat of death because of the resurrection of Jesus after his burial and, and crucifixion.
1: Well, and don't you have a – there was – you don't get Jesus if you're not having children. So part of the <laughs> – to even get all the way up there, you have to be engaging in the process of going in that direction, right? You have to be having children to even get there. To well, that point. point in time, right?
0: That last verse of First Timothy two, the that freaks everybody out, nobody yep. knows what to do with. She will be saved through child, child marriage. marriage. Right. Yep. That God built a world that that overcomes death. Right. It built a death he he built a death overcoming world. Right. It's now, but this is the allegorical nature of reality. This is so. You know, you that you are participate. We we become participants in God's overcoming of reality by uh, overcoming of death through the nature of reality by following Him, right? By faith, by trusting in Him. He also does it through people that don't follow Him, but they don't get to participate in it in the same sort of way, right? So. We you know, we have children and we rejoice. There's a lot of children that when people when when a, a mother finds out she's pregnant, it's sad news, mm. right? Right, and that um, it's not be- because it's the alleg because the and this is why you know it, um when when somebody says you know. Uh, abortion should be allowed in cases of rape right, right. you say absolutely not right that child is is a is God overcoming death one more time that child is God overcoming even something as terrible as rape right that child is the is um is an allegorical resurrection mm-hmm. right is, is it's a resurrection right <coughs> so um you the the it's um it's the equivalent of you know uh, uh, ab- aborting that is the equivalent of saying that the rape wins uh, aborting that child is the equivalent of saying rape wins, but it doesn't right we, um and I think that's but but this is this is where in the in um the the experience of reality um, without faith, without understanding, um, is so hard, right? There are so many, and I mean, there's so many times that, um, you know, my wife and I have to remind each other of the, no, God is with us. God is on our side. This is really hard thing to go through. Um, but you know, Psalm 42 says I, um, that David or no, uh, the sons of Korah, I think wrote Psalm 42, David, or the sons of Korah, whoever wrote Psalm 42, wants God like a deer wants, like a, a deer in the desert wants water. Right? Well, how? Why? It was because <clears throat> because of all the suffering that he's gone through, right? The desire for God was. Korah, you're right. It uh, was the sons of Korah. Okay. Yeah. The desire for God was grown out of the suffering, it was grown out of right yeah so you um and then when god comes in and fulfills the desires you discover what the desires were for Mm. but every desire is an allegory and this is so you've got the
1: you said desire is an allegory
0: every yeah every desire is an allegory every desire Mm. that we have is an allegory for something that God fulfills ultimately. Now it doesn't mean it's not also a desire that's fulfilled. Like if you get hungry, that desire for food is an allegory that is only ultimately fulfilled by Christ. We're, we're, Cause we're not built for bread alone, but for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and Christ is the word, right? So you've got, but we get hungry because God is ultimately going to fulfill us in Christ. We get thirsty because a God is ultimately going to fulfill us in Christ and mm. God's right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. Those are the kind, but those are the only kind of pleasures that fulfill us ultimately. The ones that are forevermore because we are built to be historical and eternal creatures at the same time.
1: It's, it's interesting. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I want you to What's, finish that.
0: But but I so I just think every single desire that we have it is ultimately an allegory for something that God will fulfill any in the eternal processes of time.
1: It's as you say that I've been taking my kids to the old Testament. We're just now getting to Deuteronomy. One of the things that I've been trying to really help them focus in on is notice that all of their desires are to be back in the garden. Right? So even their disciplinary functions, which is to put someone outside of the camp is to remember the garden, right. right? You've been put outside of the place that you want, and so it's a longing to be back in. And so every, and so as you say that, like so, there's a the, you no, know, the, there's a desire to have a uh even like a Christian nation. What are you after? You're going back for the garden, right? A, yep. a Christian society. Every desire that we have, I, I can see that for a safe home. Why do you want a safe home as a man? Because you don't want serpents talking to your women. You want to be back in the garden, right? You want right. a gardenist experience and those desires are put there to be able to long for that. And that makes so much sense.
0: It, but, and and this is this view like, and this is, this is why you've got the two different gardens, right? Um, mm. That he, that the, so th- it's something that only you can only work out really in poetry because it's it's about the poetic nature it's about the metaphysical poetic nature the po- <laughs> that we are metaphysically poems at, of god right Me- that's who we are that's what we're f- what we are and what we're for is we are poems in god's story um <laughs> and but when we don't understand that about ourselves we do a lot of you know when we do like what we do a lot of right now is try and make ourselves fix ourselves like robots you know a piece a piece (coughs) broke a piece broke down i'm getting too excited i've lost my voice
1: (laughs) that effeminate culture is coming (laughs) back
0: yeah right there um I need it. I might need to go get some water.
1: Go grab Do you want to grab some? Grab
0: some? <coughs> yeah, we'll go grab some water.
1: Yeah. Ooh.
0: <coughs> there we go. All right. I think when we so <coughs> this, when you discover something like discontent in yourself, when you think you're a robot. You think a piece must be broken down. Mm. I'm not supposed to be discontent. When you think like a poem, you realize, oh, discontent points me to something. What's this discontent? Mm. And um, there's a, a certain amount of discontent that just comes from the fact that we are a part of the cycles of death. And so we need to look for resurrection. Right. That, that discontent is not is not broken. It doesn't mean it's broken down. It could just mean we're not there yet. God could be lifting our eyes to the, to the future and saying, don't worry, I'll show up. But that's being a historical creature, being a, a poem, being an allegory, being a living allegory. <coughs> so when just say what I could just embrace, there's certain kinds of, there's a discontent that leads to complaining is is not um the is not right, right? The complaining is not right. Um but a some you know saying like man whew, this discontent is lifting my eyes to the coming resurrection. Can I that's the, that's the only thing that's gonna fulfill me ultimately.
1: So then let's go back to the Tate stuff because I think you're right. So there is a a massive form of discontent in young men in middle aged men, um, and there there's a lot of it. There's sexual, there's physical, there is religious, all there's discontent all over the place for men. And and so Andrew Tate is coming in and saying, Let me give you the piece. You yeah. it, you uh so you're built more like a a cog in a machine. Let me give you the piece that you can put in there that'll fix your discontent but the church doesn't have much of a different answer. Right. Because we're like, yeah. hey, Jesus is the peace that fixes discontent, right? That's kind of how we <laughs> right. Here's just,
0: do you want do you want to hear something really depressing? Okay. So, in the 20s through the 50s um maybe early 60s, the mainline denominations what they started preaching instead of the gospel was psychology.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. So we're going to fix, uh, w- we can fix you uh, the way a robot needs to be fixed. There's something wrong in the software, right? If there's something wrong in the hardware, you got to go to psychiatrist, but but we can fix the part that's wrong in the software of your robot brain.
1: The, the boom of the Christian counselors, right?
0: Yeah. Christian counselors. Right. So, um, and the conservatives, responded uh, and they said, we're not like the liberals using psychology. We're using sociology. And you had the entire movement of the church, the entire church growth movement, which said, we're going to find your felt needs through sociology. through, And then we'll preach on the felt needs. We'll bring people in. And we're not like your grandparents church that just, you know, that didn't address your felt needs. Um, And now the conservatives are the ones that are in the midst of the growth and preaching of psychology. So we, the mainline denominations all completely fell off, right? So now there is mostly um, LGBTQ affirming and, you know, because that's where psychology eventually leads. Um, We uh, Freudian psychology Mm -hmm. uh, eventually leads, is the problem is in society. And we are going to build a society that no longer has a superego that that opposes your id in this direction because your ego, your experience of yourself, um, is the is become comes from the conflict between your id and the superego. And so this experience of yourself that's not good, you can either change your id or you can change society and its expectations we're going to help change society and its expectations. That's where the mainline denominations went. Mm. Now the evangelical church is where the mainline denominations were in the fifties
1: yeah, yeah.
0: and the forties and the fifties. Right. Okay. So <clears throat> what's depressing about that is we know where this road goes and it's already been cleared. And so it's going to go fast. Mm. The, the mainline denominations had to clear the road as they went. So it took a long time. The road's cleared now it's going to go fast. Evangelicals are going to fall off the, the, the progressive theology bandwagon are going to, are going to fall down the, go down the progressive theology road really fast um, without some sort of major reformation or revival. Cause the roads cleared. Um, they literally, you know, they're doing it without even having the nice, um, Cathedrals and stuff to be able to keep attracting people, uh, but
1: the social justice gospel ran right through us. Like it ran through, it,
0: yeah, it. It was no, with no, there was like no opposition, no almost, almost yeah. yeah, no immune system, yeah. Um, and so that's where, that's where, I think that's where the American church is at now. The good news is, I think that COVID came in and just had a revealing effect. Ta da! Let me show you everything. Now you've got, so you have the churches that um, you, you've got, I think the, the revelation of the remnant in a lot of ways happened during yeah, COVID. yeah. Um, and that should encourage us because the identification of the remnant is the beginning of God's rescue effort every time, right? When he says, okay, it's time to rescue. The first thing he does is identify the remnant. He separates the remnant out. So the good news is that he has identified a remnant, right? He's identified the remnant and now that that's the first that's the beginning of his rescue effort. The bad news is that the rescue effort usually comes through fire. <laughs> yeah. But that's good news cuz it's fire, you know, uh, for, purification. Fi- for purification, yeah.
1: So then what is what is at the end of the day, what is Spencer trying to get at revealing these four aspects of?
0: So, what what he's trying to do is say, um, so so he's there's a really good. This is on page fifty eight. <clears throat> so he's got it's just below the the hymn in honor of beauty. Yeah, when he talks about for love as a celestial harmony of likely hearts composed of stars' consent which join together in sweet sympathy to work each other's joy and true content, which they have harbored since their first descent out of the heavenly boughs where they will, see, where they did see and know each other here beloved to be right. So he says, uh, every lover looks for qualities in the beloved that remind him of the God he followed in a former life. Now he's using a platonic mythology here. Um, that's what he says. uh, The Phaedrus is uh, Plato's. He says this, this both passages, he says clearly stem from the Phaedrus, right? So um, it's only clearly stemming from the Phaedrus. If you've spent some time studying Plato, obviously, but uh, so what Plato says is that every lover looks for qualities in the beloved that remind him of the God he followed in a former life, because, um, Plato believed in reincarnation the God that you followed in a former life when you meet somebody in, in your new life and you fall in love with them it's because they remind you of the God of your previous life the mm-hmm. God you served in the previous life they keep, the, uh, they keep their eyes fixed upon the God and as they reach and grasp him by memory they are inspired and receive from him character and habits so far as it is possible for a man to have part in God um, he says, "As for the forward view to the return to the garden and to alternative destinies, right? So, he, so what, what, he, what Spencer is doing is he's taking this idea from Plato that um, that that the divine that that falling in love um, is a memory of divinity from a future life, and he's saying it's not from a future life." of you personally it's a memory of the garden of Eden Mm -hmm. right so it's not so he's saying part
1: of me and kind of that same sort of thing
0: yeah yeah so Plato Plato he's saying Plato got got it right that it's a memory of something previous but it's not a memory of our Mm. our personal individual former life it's a memory of our corporate former life Mm. right so the corporate former life of mankind was in the garden right and so when a young man sees a woman and says oh my goodness i'm in love
1: yeah yeah
0: every time that's a reminder that should remind us that it, um what he says is it it teaches us to look forward to the mm-hmm. garden of the past and to the new promised destiny of a garden in the future, right? That we are between gardens, the garden of the Eden and the garden city at the end, at the end of time, we're between gardens and we are given in our lives opportunities by faith to return to the garden of our destiny, the garden of the past and the, uh, and the garden of our future destiny. In self giving love between a man and a woman, that each of us gets to be has the possibility of, of being an Adam or being an Eve. Now, this is where, in why he this is why in Narnia you get the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve when he starts talking about humans. What separates humans out? They're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. They are between gardens. We are mm. we, we are a people between gardens, and every time we have a child, we are defeating the death that came. From, we're hel- we're we are allegorically a part of the defeat of the death that came upon us in the garden by the grace of God, right? By the gift of God. But this is why. Um, this is why the stronger Christianity gets in the more um the more sexually the more sexual our love becomes hmm. right in in the ancient world love and sexuality are separated um you and the the um you uh sex is a part of the. It becomes a. Uh, it is an is purely economic in Rome, right? So the, the the birthing of children it becomes an economic thing. So it's more like a, a you know a, a husband and wife is is a contract um, mm-hmm. that has to do with money. Now it doesn't mean that men and women don't didn't fall in love. It just wasn't culturally the at the forefront. Christianity gets involved. And suddenly, falling in love becomes a, uh, um, all, not it's not doesn't become itself a religious act, but it takes on a, uh, it becomes an aspect of the allegory of religious devotion. Um, you, but. But but he's saying, but we've got to remember that there's still two aspects. There's this al- d- divine allegory within sexuality, and then there's also just the natural affection that is good and right and true. the 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 natural aspects of it that are, that are good and right and true. Um, and we can't we can't meld the two right? because sex is not a religious act. Mm-hmm. And sexuality is not a religious act; it is a still, it remains a biological reality and a biological act. With, but it's an allegory, right? So, um, but unless you separate them, you can't. It can't be a metaphor, right? Um, if if things become one another, there's no longer the metaphorical allegor- allegorical aspect. Mm-hmm. So, Lewis is trying to show us how deeply the medieval's thought and how careful they were about these things um so that the so that we can restore some of that like we've
1: I' does not even fit in our category we have no categories yeah, for that. we
0: don't have any categories right we we wrestle to even talk about sex and what happens is you know our teenagers have their first crush and our sexual guilt rears its ugly head and we beat the, their first crush out of them dun, dun, dun. it's not real that's not real it's just you know, um, that's and rather than saying, oh, spirit, it's another aspect of the spiritual awakening. Let me tell you about the um, the generative love of God and how you're starting to feel oh, mm. something that God built into you because he loves in such a way that um, new things come into existence. And he loves that about himself. You know, so he funny. built that into you. I so, that you that could experience something that he enjoys. I, uh,
1: ever since we talked about that with Dante, I, I anybody who's listening, I think there's a couple things that put some of the stuff you're saying into context, especially about the sexual experience. Walker Percy, as we're talking about mm-hmm. the erotica, that's huge to understand, put in context what you're saying, as well as when we're talking about Dante and, um, Dante's desire. He realized his desire for this girl was really an awakening of his desire for God and God was giving right. him a small taste of what it is to be to have him, right? And here here's what it looks like. See her? Yeah. And so, but what it did was it put in him the desire to want to be virtuous to be able to have that. Right. Right. It's right. the same way with the Lord, right? There's treasures and beauties forevermore in him. Um and so it creates, it should create a virtuous person. That's what love does right and in in, in, to, in order to be able to attract that even um and the lack of virtue pushes the thing that you desire away from you <laughs> right yeah
0: well Augustine describes it like there's um that the beauty of God creates rivulets of beauty that flow from him that we take pleasure in mm. right so you're you see a um, you know, uh, you know, you you come out in the early morning sun and you experience the pleasure of the warm sun on your skin after a night of, you know, in the dark and sleep, and that pleasure, he said, is because of the beauty of that experience. The beauty of that experience is a rivulet that's flowing from the beauty of the Creator. He created it that way. Um, because he is beautiful and he and um and he said you can actually move up any of those rivulets in your mind towards god um but virtue is a way of of swimming up mm. the rivulets of beauty right mm. being that uh and there are times that it doesn't feel like that's going to work it's going to work that way because of sin in the world sin within ourselves the the way death has invaded but um so but by faith uh this this is the you know how the the 10 commandments is a description of living a the beautiful life
1: Mm -hmm. right
0: like Mm -hmm. living living in the beauty of god living according to the life of god because the law is a description of how god lives and so we live like that and that's how we discover the deep the deepest pleasures the deepest glories the deepest beauty uh is by living virtuously living and and w- this is w- you know, so far out of our categories that you we we think i don't want to get busted so i'm going to do so i'm going to not break the law right
1: <laughs> Or, or I mean, but this goes back to what we were talking about with Tate. Tate is the false cupid,
0: uh-huh.
1: right? And Wait. and it's the he's the other side, the uh, the second tier of the garden,
0: right? Yeah the the diabolic the diabolical Venus.
1: Yeah. So when you get hit by the false cupid, then the diabolical Venus takes over. <laughs>
0: I, like that's the yeah. end of
1: going yeah. in that trajectory because you so, think
0: you're gonna get out of the physical act of sex from the, you're you think you think you're going to get something um, that will give you identity. Right. But yep. what happens is that hole is so deep that you will empty the entire world trying to fill it before you will ever fill it. Um, you know, so what ha- you leave, you leave the sh- a shell of ghostly women behind you that you have sucked dry because you're a vampire Empire. right you you had um oh, man, and, which is and, and you don't porn
1: is you outrageous
0: well he he's got that um
1: because they're just sucking women dry just and they're never being fulfilled
0: right well he describes let me see, in here um uh, <sighs> the oh yeah here it is so uh he talks. He was talking about the the when the garden becomes the bower, the false the false garden. He says the the bower is simply a place of sensuality. Okay. never. Oh, this is page forty six.
1: Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. It is,
0: I have. He it says it's never shown in the act of love. It presents no action, but only the sensual attractions that lead to action. Um, so you've got the the man and the woman in a per- or the the man and the woman in a perpetual state of being attracted to one another but never consummating um you know and that's go right, ahead, which is pornography right so um, well that's what he's talking he, about he says,
1: go i'll let you finish and then I'll say
0: well just the destructive nature of uh, of un uh, of feeding lust and not fulfilling it right he's, that that we that that's actually not that that's not better Right. that that actually um it it turns these people into ghosts um that because they 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 don't even so he's like it's not it's not like you've got something better because you're like oh I lust but i just i'll I just look you know I just keep looking and I, I never touch right. um says so well that actually is it's terrible for your soul um because it it gives you this ghostly uh mm. experience of everything else right um because you're it's like your your heart and your mind floats into the garden, but never actually eats anything or touches anything, and then floats back out, and then floats in and floats back out. And you you in some ways you're worse off um, by not ever touching, yeah, um, right? You know, because because you're dislodged from reality, and because he then he describes the opposite of that, the reenlodgement. Oh man, I found this really. Incredible.
1: Just to preface what you were saying though, real quick was you're looking for that. That he says not that there's anything wrong with art in itself. And this is the part that you were getting with the bower, But the bower is not art-, art to deceive. Art substituted for nature. Right. Right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, snap. Like, yeah, that's the deceitfulness of it. It's not, it's putting forth itself as light, as good, as nature, as natural. And it, but it's not. It's deception of that
0: yeah and the um and so he says that and then that's why spencer then mm-hmm. describes them in this perpetual this perpetual attraction but never touching mm. um, that that keeps them from ev- ever actually experiencing anything else in the garden the, as well wow but he says but but um th- then when he talks about how when things are going right in the in the garden Where you at? This is the end of page fifty-one. So then, the Garden of Adonis represents neither a virtue nor a vice nor any state of mind, but a cosmic operation. Yet it's one that concerns us all directly. From the Garden, we have all come to it. Moreover, we have all returned. For in our erotic experience, we participate in that cosmic operation. Right. So we that feeling of displacement and dislodgement is actually solved or, or is undone or is, is, is disentangled from the ghostly dislodgement. We're disentangled from that ghostly dislodgement um, in our own, in our own erotic experience, right. By having sex with our wives, Mm. we are, we become a part of the return to the garden and the co- and but we also become a part of the cosmic operation of the world, right? the The world as it's intended to be, we, so there's a, a sense in which we find our place, our experience of place, in the proper use of sexuality in our marriage, right? This so the allegory, yeah, because yeah, because we're this living allegory, we're actually so so, but but something that powerful is why it's uh, when it is presented in, in that Andrew Tate diabolical way, um, the, the pro- that promise, um, the, that promise is not, it becomes attached to the physical act mm. instead of the right use. If that makes sense. Yeah, right.
1: We're, so, we're through that a little bit.
0: So what somebody like Andrew Tate is doing is he is promising the, the what sex in marriage can do which is um provide the experience of the return to the garden and the experience in advance of the promise of the garden of the garden city at the end right by uh by because we become a part of the cosmic operation the of the operation of the world the way god intended it as well as the generative uh you know the the generative love of God that he embedded allegorically into the functions of the world. This, we don't really have these categories in anything else. So, so this is why, this is why reading the medievals is so helpful, right? Is because God built a world that in which two people love each other, they get married, they come together, their love produces new people mm-hmm. because his love produced the first people he likes that. He he enjoyed that. And he wants us to also experience and enjoy what he did. Now, we do it as creatures in a creaturely way. He did it as a creator it, it, with an independent being and it's all, all of that. But we are experiencing the cosmic operations of the way God built the world. It, it, but what Andrew Tate does is he takes that promise of uh, the way sex provides a existential experience of being in uh, of being in the place that God intended us to be that return to the garden that the the promise of a future garden that promise he attaches to the physical act and then provides a mm-hmm. way to get to the physical act outside of the covenantal protections outside of the covenantal realities outside of the virtue outside of the the process of wooing that is an important part of it right he takes he separates it all out and says and promises that you're going to get what you get um from a good sexual relationship with a spouse in marriage from a hookup
1: or something else
0: So, isn't that something else
1: isn't that Almost the very definition of witchcraft, trying to accomplish, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Yeah, that's why that's why Spencer calls it diabolical,
1: mm. right? because
0: it's it, he's it's an attempt to um, you know, uh, it, it's it's demonic. Right? It's an attempt to get hold of the power of God, which was the promise that the devil gave: mm. right? you'll be like God, right? So it's it, it's the it's. So diabolical is a a purposeful word. It's what it's the uh, trying to get what the devil it's trying to accomplish what the devil promised, or it's a re-promise of the devil's promise. Um, It's the restatement of the devil's promise, because you're talking about when you say diabolical, we're still talking about the garden. So it's the devil in the garden comes with this promise of power. Mm. You can be like God. That's what the false garden is promising. Now, most Christians have not, we, we don't, we just back away from all of it, right? We back away from everything because we are, uh, we don't have a good answer. We're not, we don't have a cosmo, we don't have a, we don't have a cosmology that can answer any of these questions. And so we say, I'm just going to keep my head down and try and do what's right. That's actually not a terrible response, um, but we're just missing out on a lot of these really wonderful, great things um, that can begin within a family and then can grow to well, well it's, a whole it's society. And
1: it's terrible. No, it's a terrible response because we don't tell people what to do with their desires anymore,
0: right? I what I, that's but that's the church's pro, fault, not an individual person. I, I right. Saying, so, I yeah, the, yeah. The
1: of, so if I if I would have known, I would have done it, but I didn't know because you didn't right. tell
0: me. Exactly. Exactly. Right. That's that's what I mean. Is so, but um, the the church as a whole and the generations that came before us, you know, we we haven't been told these things, right? We've been um, and, and, and we, I mean, we didn't even have to burn books. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. Like we, we, we got, and we still don't have all of the knowledge that's available. That's on our fingertips. I mean, I mean, I just, I, I the, um I remember reading a, this German philosopher Haman, who was opposed to Kant back. I don't know. I read him 15 18 years ago, a friend lent me a book and I, I couldn't remember what the book was. I, I kept trying to find it. I was spelling the guy's name wrong. And then <laughs> somebody this last week sent me an email like, Hey, this argument that you made, it reminded me of this thing in Haman. And well, that's where I got it, but I couldn't remember quite where I got it. Um, Cause I had got the, I had the guy's name wrong. And he sent me a link to archive.org where here was the book. <laughs> <laughs> then I went and looked like, oh, I can't afford it. It's like 800 dollars or whatever on Amazon because it's had been out of print. But it's on archive.org for free. All right. And so here I am reading again this German philosopher that I'd been looking for who was a contemporary of Kant and opposed him. He was a Christian opposing Kant in his day. Mm. Saying, here is what Kant is trying to change. That's really important, right? Because Kant is a major, is a major um popularizer of the enlightenment you have a christian in his day saying kant is getting kant is going to get rid of these things that are right here that we have if if we follow him um and even kant was like yeah this guy's brilliant so i'm still trying to figure out how to answer his objections in in his day um so and it's just available for free it's it's right there i've been reading it on my on my cell phone um (laughs) <laughs> the lack of information is not the problem. We have gone through the information revolution and it's there. Right? Um The information is all there. We What we have been, um, we've got a literacy problem that because of the previous generations didn't teach us to read. They didn't, we had an inheritance, they hid it in the attic and they didn't pass it on to us. So now, Without, now that we know that we can spend our energy going up and getting the inheritance out of the attic and putting it in the front yard and sorting it and talking about it and having a big yard sale and you know and... <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. it doesn't mean the inheritance isn't there it's just that it's been hidden from us and we didn't know it was there
1: bro this is still just to be able to understand fairy queen this is crazy I know.
0: yeah but that but you, do you see why I'm I think the fairy queen is a key.
1: No, I do more and more, but I don't know how I would have been able to understand it apart from going through this. Right. Well, because I think, go ahead.
0: That's what this book is for. Here's the things you're not going to (laughs) get. Well,
1: (coughs) even the fact that you, you know, when you were talking about this, that you got Edmund Spencer, who's influenced Lewis and Lewis is like, I can't introduce anybody to Spencer because they don't have the categories to handle them. So then let me write a trilogy so that people can be introduced to the type of people that Spencer were. So they can go back and read Spencer. Right. Right.
0: And and then he wrote Narnia to introduce children to children's imaginations, to the categories that they would need to be able to someday read Spencer. (laughs)
1: So yeah, being able to just, again, I think being able to read poetry is, is a massive problem that we face. So then guys who, even that are, you know, 30 years removed reading guys like George Gilder, you start reading them in a poetic way and a lot of stuff that he says, you're like, Oh, he's, I get him. He's right. Yeah, but sure. I would I would never think about it in those ways, um, so we just we're just not capable of reading guys like him.
0: Yeah, because he's he is on the tail end of um, the yeah,
1: classically
0: yeah. educated generation, and yeah, so people we're reading him. I I, I haven't read um his sexual, the book and yeah, sexual, and Men and Women in Sexual Suicide. Yeah. Sexual Suicide is that what it's called?
1: That's the first one that was written in seventy three, and then it was Men in uh, in Marriage that was follow-up, and then it's a reprint now that Cannon Press is doing of made a okay. America.
0: But even that page, I read it and thought, well, poetically, he's saying this thing. And mm-hmm. that is not a threat. If you tried to take the metaphor as a, literally, if, if, if he means this metaphor literally, that'd be weird. But it seems like he's talking to, he's, he's setting up a metaphorical, a metaphor system, or he's dealing with a metaphor system that it's just you know people don't get and so they just they look at it and they're like it'd be like it's i mean it it reminded me of dispensational readings of revelation when they're like and then jesus is going to come with tattoos uh-huh. on his legs um and belching swords and um you know that and, and and you're like well you could could be a metaphor i mean it's Possible, right? Like this could be a poetic section. Well, that, no, we got to read it literally. We don't. We don't read. So, um. Oh, but I haven't read the I haven't read the book, so I don't want to.
1: Yeah, I've I, been
0: uh, avoiding commenting because I I don't like to comment on books. So I've read them yeah. and movies. So I've seen them. You know.
1: I I'll tell you this. Breton Dorothy Sayers was a whirlwind for me. Right, it's like mm-hmm. I realize there's categories that conservatism or Republican or evangelical conservatism taught me that aren't biblical. But the pendulum has swung so far that I have allowed these categories to be almost like a doctrine that's biblical and they're not. And she's kind of helped me like push against, I think if Dorothy Sayers was in our culture right now, we would consider her a feminist.
0: Right. Right. And yeah, Dante even though what she's defending Dante, I mean, she's exactly. defending Dante's view of the world. Well, that's so she wrote that in the middle of translating Dante, yeah, which is um,
1: am I, is a is woman human? Mm-hmm.
0: Are women human? Like, is that women, what it was? Are, are women human?
1: Are women human? <laughs> yeah, and then but then that was the other thing I was going to say, which is as I read Dante, he don't fit in my evangelical reform world at all. Right. Like, and so I started reading him. I'm like, either he's broken or I'm broken. <laughs> I'm not on the same level. So I'm going gonna-
0: to. Yeah, I experienced that a lot. One of the things in here, one of my, I think my favorite quote from this chapter uh, on, page Which five, one? Five, on page 59.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, That where it's the part where. Lewis is trying to sort out how he uses the that section of Plato. Right? He's like, but he's a Christian. What's he doing using this section of Plato that um, about reincarnation? He's repurposing um, Plato's use of reincarnation um, to talk about almost like a, a a you know like a collective unconscious, but not a biological collective unconscious. He's repurposing this use of Platonism. Um, and he, he says the, the, there's two things that we have to remember. He said, the first is that the whole school of thought to which Spencer belonged felt that in the long run, everything must be reconcilable. There was no belief, however pagan or bizarre it might seem, that could not be accommodated somehow, if only it were rightly understood. That I think is is the the Christian humanism that says, okay, people are gonna people in peopleish ways.
1: That's interesting the way he phrased that. Rightly understood.
0: That's Rightly int- understood, right? Yeah. So he says, what is so when when Plato's dealing with reincarnation and he says So he's saying, why does, why do people fall in love? It's this, it's mysterious. I mean, even Solomon says, there's certain things I don't understand. And one of them, he says the way of a man with a maid. How is it that young people, why is it that this, these two people fall in love? It's mysterious. It's strange. Plato says there's it's a, you know, he gives this answer that has to do with reincarnation and rather than say, no, you're absolutely wrong. That's he says what he says, Oh, you're asking the right question, mm. but there's a biblical answer. Um, that, that is shaped in a similar way, but you're, you got it backwards or you got it inside out, you know? Right. So it's a way of move. He moves, he move. So when somebody comes reading Plato, um, you the and the question comes up. Oh, here's the question instead of saying, you know, um, oh, Plato's a heathen, don't even worry about it. He says, Oh, actually, we've got a better answer to Plato's proper question than Plato mm. has. Um, we, uh, Plato was on the right track, um, uh, but he was facing the wrong direction. Let's get let's mm. turn the car around and actually take that track that Plato found himself. Uh, um, walking down, even though he walked the wrong direction on the track, um, that doesn't mean that that track doesn't have a good, good and proper use. Um, there's no belief, however pagan or bizarre it might seem, that could not be accommodated somehow, if only it were rightly understood. And I think that's um, something that, he, he, in a weird way, it's all it—it's like the 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 right use of felt needs. <laughs> Okay, so then
1: let me push I I I'm with you I'm following you on that but then let me bring some of our previous conversation into this when it rates when it comes to critical Christian biblical critical theory and Christian nationalism. It's like there you go, right? Like they are they're on the right track. They're going like just like in the same way we want to understand Plato, can we understand these guys in that same
0: way? Well, and that's that's what I'm I want to become someone who thinks like Lewis in these ways. I'm not always. a lot of times I'm like bye ah, idiots and morons blah <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's actually not helpful. Um, which is why try you know I, I've tried to become a person that says, okay well where do we agree? Let's start there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where do we agree and let's find that let's let's not overreact let's find the disagreement right let's, let's, let's figure out where the disagreement is. And, and really, and um because I, I'm, I am at a point in my faith where I'm confident that the scriptures do have an answer. Right. Right. I'm not, you know, um, I've been, I've been doing this long enough and studying the scriptures long enough that I do think that true Christian, you know, true, a true Christian understanding has an answer to every philosophical quandary and question. Um And so I'm not afraid of anything at the, um, I've, I haven't come across an objection that um, in a really long time, that's even new. <laughs>
1: right.
0: like, it's just, a, there's refrying old objections over and over again at this, you know, and at this point you're just like, man, the, the beans are getting dry. Um, that's Rise the same. Heresy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so because of that, I don't think you have to have, you don't have to approach with fear and i think it's the same you know r- this is really important for raising kids when we're ra- and especially when you get to teenagers because when they start to say hey i got questions right there's a way that we shut down questions that mm-hmm. causes them to go to somebody else for the answers mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. or when if we respond um you know that i was <laughs> one of my children i won't say which one we were um at the we were getting gas and we we we, uh went in to grab some caffeinated beverages at the gas station and we were coming out and two girls his age that were twins that were very cute walked past and he turned he waited he 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 noticed them they walked past and he didn't look and then he turned and looked right gave the second look um of dang those are cute girls um and twins even and um the and I, and had that moment of how do i address how do i help him right because there's a way of coming down on him that says hey i'm assuming you are lusting right now whack 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 right, right? um which may be the case maybe not maybe maybe not the case right i don't know I, I don't know i can't read his heart there's a way of saying hey d- you should be ashamed of yourself but they were cute girls his age if he didn't notice we'd have a different problem on our hands right we, that's, that's the noticing is yeah that, that yeah, um you you want, um, but and then there's a way that says, man that that says, what does it take for me to win one of those in the right way? Like, well, how do I become somebody that one of those says? That's what hey. that's
1: exactly what Tate's answering.
0: It is exactly right, but he, but not in a way that says. And then how do I become someone who brings one of those to their um, – to a Intent fruitful, end. intended mm-hmm. end?
1: Right? Yep.
0: How do I love a woman such that she flourishes so much that all of the heathens around me um, – the, that all of the heathens around me shut their mouths? Because they say, yeah, that's amazing. Because that's the kind of creature a woman is. Yeah. Right? Um, that when when she becomes who God created her to be, that 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 the heathens um, say, "Well, I can't object to that." <laughs> exactly. There's no objection to that. That's, that's amazing. Kind of... that, that's no, beautiful. Right? That's wonderful. Right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the so, um, you know, and so <clears throat> you're always you've always got those moments. With, with these things with teenagers that um, that are opportunities to move towards that says, hey, God has given the, the desires that God has given you. all of those are ultimately fulfilled in him, and there's a right way to use and enjoy the things in the present, in the moment, the created things, um, rightly that bring you a taste of that fulfillment that you will get with Christ in advance. So we don't have to be afraid. So some of this in your
1: situation in that moment is an age thing because depending on the age, you're going to handle this differently. So if if you have a son that is at the age or at the maturity, should I say, where you're like, it's time for you to get you one of them. Your approach to that is there's a way to secure that. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's, Here's what you go do. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, and then there's like, it's like, oh, that's, there's like, man, there's looking towards one day you're going to have one of those. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, but, and what's what's interesting is. I'll tell a story about a 16 year old that may or may not be one of mine. <laughs> that. He got his driver's license and this was right at the uh, this was this is within a couple of months of that particular situation, got his driver's license. And a uh, few weeks later sat down with my wife and I, and he said, I'm not ready to get married yet. We're like, mm-hmm, yep. We agree. <laughs> and he said, but I'm not that far off. Mm. And I want to make sure that I start doing things now that will get me ready for marriage. And so Mm -hmm. here's my plan. Right. And so he had thought it out. He, um, and, but this didn't happen and until he started noticing how cute girls were. And there's a direct correlation where he says, Oh, I want to, I want to grow up. Um, those things seem enjoyable. Right. (laughs) Right. That, um, I, and, uh, but, but that's exactly what you want, right. What you want is, um, the connection between the beauty uh the the connection between the beauty and the maturity the need for maturity you want that to to spur one another on you want the beauty to say to say to his to the souls of your your sons man up um, that man up yeah exactly <laughs>
1: hey it, um,
0: yeah. and, that, and that, that's all god's idea too and i think that's the other thing that we forget is we we immediately go into biology mode hey your hormones are raging you know this and that all but it was it was god's idea um puberty was god's idea yeah and, and in some ways i i know it's because he just he's got a funny sense of humor
1: yeah
0: that's <laughs> and he's like yeah puberty makes boys and girls both do weird, funny things, and it's a pro. And you learn there's a lot of self control that's to it's ready to be gained in that moment. But
1: yeah, yeah, there's actually if you haven't been teaching self control, you'll find out in that moment too, right? right. Like yeah. if you haven't been disciple, just getting them ready for that. I remember my mom was thinking these things through with me at nine and ten. You know, she was here's what's going to happen to you, son. And You know, you're eleven. I'm like, my that's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. You know, oh, it's going to happen. It's gonna happen. And I'll tell you about when it happens. And she was right. And so when those things hit me, I was able to recall her wisdom, right? And I knew and how to engage and what to do. And so, you know, at the time, I'm, you know, it was helpful to me to know I wasn't surprised by the battles I was gonna face. It was having a good general there to tell me, "Hey, this is what war looks like. When you get into war, this is how you engage with it." You know, right? Um, and so, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like she was, and she was very encouraging to. Pursue this, but in this t- in the right type of way that it has uh, virtue and glory to it, versus pursuit with shame and guilt. Right? Yeah. There's two different roads, like we were just talking about with the the garden. Right? Just, there's one way that leads to uh, glory and uh, joy and happiness, and there's one way that leads to shame and guilt and destruction. One's diabolical. Right? right? <laughs> uh, go the way that gives blessing. All right, we got to run because I got to run too, but we're going to hit up on, and I just looked at, I haven't looked at another chapter, chapter four, The Image of Evil. Oh my goodness, I can't wait to get there.